Well, it being Reformation Sunday, I decided to uh, let Ezekiel rest for one week, and I wanted to preach to you from the Gospel of John, chapter 8. So if you want to, uh, if you, if you want to follow along in your Bible, that's where we're going this morning, John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. So John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36, and we'll, uh, I'll begin by reading. So Jesus said to the Jews, who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the word of the Lord. And so we say, thanks be to God. I want to thank all of you again for the kindness that you extended to me last Sunday during the fellowship time. As as all of you know, October The month of October for me marks two years since you called me to be the pastor here at Grace, and I'm thankful you've given me the task, and I strive to be worthy of it. I've been here since 2012, that's when I first moved to Alexandria, when I took on a teaching job at Grace Christian School, and that itself was quite an adventure. I went from literally studying books in a tower in Scotland to teaching teenagers in a classroom in central Louisiana. And I will not soon forget an interaction I had with one of my co-workers, I will not be telling you the name, within my first few months of teaching at the school. One of the teachers here at the school wanted to help me, he knew that I was new to teaching. And so this teacher left an article in my mailbox with a note attached to it, Brian, thought you might find this useful, and he signed it. The title of the article was how to detect narcissistic behavior, seven telltale signs. I had not been a teacher for more than a month or two. I was really taken aback. I I thought, what sort of passive-aggressive workplace is this? Now, let me just go ahead and give away the ending. This coworker of mine did not mean to offend. He knew I was a brand new teacher, and he had read this article about narcissism, and particularly how research, actual psychological social research uh, was being done, and concluding that the millennial generation and Generation Z were consistently testing in the highest ranges for diagnosable narcissism than anyone ever had been before. If you're curious more about that, there's a book called The Narcissism Epidemic. Uh, you can find it there. And so he, he found this article. He genuinely, innocently thought, you know, I'll bet maybe some of our seniors could learn a thing or two about this. I'm going to give it to the senior Bible teacher so he can think about using it. Genuine and innocent. But he didn't put that in the note, y'all. <laughs> so I tracked down this teacher and I confronted him. And I, I, I started out trying to not to assume anything, kind of be very, very gentle, charitable. I said, so, so you put this article in my box. Okay, thank you. Um, what did you mean to say by giving this article to me? And he said, well, I, I just thought it might be useful to you. 
Useful, okay, useful. Yes, useful, I think you should read it. Uh, oh, okay. Um, and, and how is it you think I should put it into use after I've read it? Right? And he said, you know, just however you feel led to apply it, really. <laughs> it's just, I think, however you feel led. By, which, by the way, is what Christians say when they don't actually want to give you hard advice when they're confronted with a direct question. Well, really, just however you feel led. I said, okay, is there perhaps a way you are hoping I will apply it? It's, I really can't say. I think you should read it and make that call for yourself. <laughs> Finally, unable to bear this, I just said, sir, do you think I am a narcissist? And you have never seen such shock wash over a man's face. Is he just, no, why, why would you think that? <laughs> now, here's my point. Miscommunication is really easy, Okay. It's one thing to take from the story. Another thing might be right, avoid gossip and lying by trying to put the most charitable construction on people's words and actions that you can until they force you to do otherwise. But another principle you can see in the story is that the offer to help someone be better or do better probably means you believe they're not doing so great. Offering medicine means you have to assume somebody's sick. Offering hope means you believe someone's in despair. Offering reflections on how to beat narcissism might mean you think the person is a proud narcissist. And for our text this morning, offering to make men free, as Jesus does, means you have to believe that they're slaves. And so in our text this morning, John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, Jesus tells his hearers, which by the way, we, we find out many of whom were believing in him, in verse 30, more on that in a moment. He tells them that the truth will set you free. They're offended because you only offer freedom to slaves. They immediately understand that that is what Jesus is saying. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We learn from the previous verse that, again, Jesus is addressing a crowd of people who have believed in him, or at least I can say many of whom believed in him. Um, text doesn't say every single person, nor does it have to. Uh, the Gospels don't usually pinpoint things with that level of specificity. But we know that those in the crowd are believing. And so Jesus, good shepherd that he is, tells them that if they want to remain in his flock, so to speak, remain as a disciple, they must abide in his word. And if they do that, they'll know the truth, and the truth will set them free. And so in one sense, one way to put this entire sermon is abide in the words of Jesus, abide in the Scriptures, and you will remain, little flock, dear saints. But how does that hit Jesus' hearers? Look at verse 33. They answer him, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? What do they mean? Well, in the Old Testament, God gave promises to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And if you read those promises given in that covenant, the Lord's covenant vow with them was nothing short of global dominion. God promised that they would be the head of all creation, certainly not the tail, to put it that way. Deuteronomy 28.13 is an example of this. God tells them, Yahweh, the Lord, will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of 
the Lord Yahweh your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. This was the promise, one of them anyway, given to Abraham's seed. They would rule the world. They would be the head, never the tail, never servants or slaves. They were God's special, untouchable people. And have we not already seen in the book of Ezekiel how that misunderstanding poisoned their hearts? Misunderstanding of the promise. That they they took God's promise to make them kings and presumed that that meant that they were now gods. And so we keep finding the Lord in Ezekiel saying, if you will not have me, you're going to be the tail, not the head. And the real horror of it is that they are slaves in bondage to their sin. They don't even know it. They don't even, to, to use this metaphor, they don't even see their chains. Some of you might have heard of an ancient Jewish rabbinical text called the Mishnah. It was written around the year 200 A.D. It gives us a lot of insight into Judaism of the 2nd and 3rd centuries, which, of course, it it does bear saying, was a Jesus-rejecting Judaism, a Messiah-rejecting Judaism, a post-cross and resurrection, what-do-we-do-now-that-there's-no-temple Judaism. But it does lend a lot of insight into the theology uh, and, and thinking and worldview of the, of the Jews of this period. And one part of it states this, even the poorest in Israel are looked upon as free men who have lost their possessions. So, so free men, they might be poor, they're still free men. Why? They are sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So no matter how low you sink, if you're a son of Abraham, you're still free, so do you see why they answer Jesus the way they, the way they do? Based on, based on this. We are sons of Abraham. How is it that you can start talking to us about liberating us? We've never been slaves to anybody. So Egypt accepted, right? And Babylon, but never mind. It's because the offer of freedom itself is an accusation of slavery. This is why, by the way, the Reformation was such an explosive time in history. Because men were preaching the freedom of the gospel, liberty unveiled, spiritual food and milk and and wine without cost. It's why preaching the gospel of forgiveness and reconciliation and reconciliation, okay, forgiveness and reconciliation together is offensive to a world obsessed with the chains of victimhood. It's why the gospel is so offensive because you only offer freedom to slaves. But freedom is hard to find in this world because because we're all beggars. It's on the front of your bulletin. Uh, Because we're all slaves. That's what Jesus told them, right? Jesus offers them freedom. They say, are you calling us slaves? Jesus answered them, verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, and your translation might have make a practice of sin, that's, that's fine, is a slave to sin. With these words, Jesus indicts the whole world. For the world is enslaved to sin. We come into this world controlled by our desires, and even the good things we do, we do for really selfish reasons. And the moment we believe that we're really doing good, pure acts of service, and we say, I've finally made it, oh, you don't even feel the chains of pride around your wrist, do you? This is hard for us to believe. And I, I, really, I really want to convince you of that this morning. This is hard for you to believe, even as you maybe you're sitting in the pew going, yes, we believe that, okay? Because as, as Americans, 
We believe that good, decent, hard-working people who pull themselves up by their bootstraps and who make the world a better place to live in must be well-liked by God. And if that is you, I'm sorry to tell you that the alcoholics and the prostitutes and the pedophiles and the tax collectors who repent will be closer to the kingdom than you because they know their wickedness and you're blind to yours. Now, now do you think the offer of freedom is offensive? Jesus calls them the best sort of people, religious people. He calls them slaves to sin. And freedom is hard to find because we tend to, as you have that language, everyone who practices sin, gets into the groove of sin, if you like. That is our slavery. And we love our slavery. Sinners do. We, We would rather... Bear our chains than admit we are slaves. A.W. Pink once said that the idea that a man needs to be set free, the idea that a man needs to be set free is a truth that the natural man cannot tolerate. The very announcement of it stirs up the enmity within him. Like, how dare you call me a, a, a slave to sin? And the greatest bondage you will ever see or you will ever suffer yourself is bondage that you don't see. And so this is the whole foundation for the sermon. I'm going to give it to you right now, okay? Your number one biggest problem is your sin. Your number two biggest problem is that you believe your number one problem is something else, okay? Your number one biggest problem is your sin. Your number two problem is that you think the problem is something else. It's your job and you're unhappy with it. It's your money and you don't have enough. It's your wife or your husband. It's your kids. It's your coworkers. It's the economy. It's the president. It's a virus. It's a vaccine. It's the young people. It's the old people. It's the deep state. It's the media. Your biggest problem is your sin. Your second biggest problem is that you don't believe that. This is why when Martin Luther wrote his 95 theses, 95 propositions that he famously nailed to the church door in Wittenberg 504 years ago, The very first one was when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed, or He meant, the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, right? So repentance is not the thing you do at a revival service once when you come to Jesus, or or whatever your story is, and and then you're done repenting. Repenting is your life, Christian, all of it, all of it. Your entire life is repentance, otherwise you're a slave to sin. And what Jesus comes and proclaims to these people and to you and to me in John 8 is that you must be free. This is the whole sermon in one sentence. One of the greatest gifts of teaching that Martin Luther gave us, and and by the way, I'm going to have kind of Martin Luther's going to help me preach a bit this morning. You're going to see a few quotations from him. If that bothers you that you're hearing from two preachers this morning rather than one, I don't know what to say to you. I'm sorry, I guess. But, but one of the things Luther gave us was this distinction between law and gospel. He really hammered that in and said, no pun intended, uh, but really, really pressed this into the corners, as it were, this distinction between law and gospel, law and gospel, and don't get them confused. And so here's a, here's a four-letter sentence for you to illustrate the difference between law and gospel and how God weaves them together in a text like this. And it's this, you must, there's the law, be free, there's the gospel, right? And that's the, that's the whole sermon this morning. You must be free. And that's law and gospel. You must, you must receive this gift. 
You must be free. Why? Why must you be free? The next verse, John chapter 8, verse 35. Because the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. You see, the Pharisees believed, and the Jews listening to Jesus believed, that because they were Abraham's children, right, we're kings, we're untouchable. You can't enslave kings. And with this language, here in verse 35, what Jesus is doing is he's bringing them back to that time, to the time of Abraham, to Genesis chapter 21, verse 10, when God commanded Abraham, cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Cast out this woman with her son. Now, it's it's a whole thing that's going on in Genesis with Abraham and Ishmael, Hagar, and all that, but what what I want to stress to you, in Jesus hearkening back to this moment in Genesis, is you're Abraham's sons, good for you. If you recall, even Abraham's sons could not be accepted by God. They were not kings, so to speak, if they were not part of his covenant. Abraham's son, Isaac, received the blessing of God's covenant because he was a son of faith. That's what we're told. Not because he was perfect, by the way, for heaven's sake. And so, you must be free. That is the call this morning. You must be free. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever, if we can go back to that text. Uh, Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So you must be free. So how? how? How is it that you can be free? Well, first, you have to recognize that you're a slave. Slave to sin. Unavoidably, but apart from the mercy of God, it's not just that you sin, it's that you don't have any other options. Even the good stuff that you think is so praiseworthy is so motivated by your flesh. Now comes the question, okay? So in this, when is Jesus talking to unbelievers or believers? And we, we know he's talking to believers, but this word that he gives is for both groups, And let me explain why. Just to be clear, if you are in here or if you're listening to me uh, by the video or whatever, and you're not a Christian, I want to help you understand that you are not free. I really want to help you understand that. So many today insist that they are, they're free spirits, right? Or they're free thinkers. When in fact, you are a slave to whatever the culture around you tells you to believe and do. Today, people are awarded titles like being bold and daring and courageous when all they're actually doing is parroting a liturgy that's been given to them by their culture. To the culture's wide applause, and for some reason we call that courageous. It's not. It's slavery. You think being molded by advertising and social media is freedom? I want to tell you, if all the things that our culture presently demands that you say are liberating and freeing... I invite you to explain the highest rates of anxiety, fear, depression, and suicide that we've ever seen. Having said that, when Jesus speaks of servants getting thrown out of the house, He is not talking about unbelievers, people who know that they are not Christians. He's talking about people who think they are Christians, but are not. And in the Gospel of John, you see just repeatedly throughout John, you basically meet two groups of people. 
those who think they are believers and are, and those who think they are believers and are not. And Jesus is saying, just because you claim to be a son, you think that's going to keep you in the house? Because there's a difference between sons and slaves. Sons live with the family forever. Slaves in, in this culture serve for as long as they're useful and then they're released. They don't inherit anything. They don't retire and spend the rest of their years in the upstairs guest room. They leave. Because slaves don't remain in the house forever. Sons do. That's what Jesus is saying. And so people who are slaves to sin then, slaves to their flesh, many of them come to Christianity. Many people come to Christianity or come to the church because they want stuff or they want to just do better. They want to feel like good people. They want to sit around other people who make them feel like good people. In Luther's day, he said, at first people adhere to the gospel, expecting to become great popes and bishops and princes and lords. They want to yield to no one and to be as free as the birds. But when they recognize the truth, one after another falls away. They flock to the gospel for fleshly, carnal freedom and temporal benefits. And when they don't find what they're looking for, when God doesn't pay up like He's supposed to, they abandon it. And then he says, for example, peasants in our city now disdain the gospel for they have discovered that it brings them no earthly goods. And I cannot help but wonder sometimes if the temptation for us is if if we like coming to church because it allows us to check a box, to accomplish a task, to act out our religion, and then to flee. Flee the table, flee fellowship, flee accountability, Flee repentance, flee being known because we want to remain enslaved to our religious passivity and we will not be robbed of our chains. This is, to my mind, the real scandal in the Western church. We, we love to preach against the prosperity gospel while we nurse the expectation that God owes us ease and comfort, and no conflict in relationship, and no need to forgive 70 times 7, no need to live as though my number one problem is my sin, my own sin, my own most grievous sin, and my number two problem is that I don't believe that. That's not going to last. It, it can't last. Only the son remains forever. Slaves do not remain in the house forever. And by the way, that's another way of looking at the prodigal son story. Not in my notes, but it occurred to me uh, in our, the, the book repository that we've got in the Fellowship Hall, this book called The Prodigal God by Tim Keller, a great way to understand this parable. Basically, a way to understand this, the, the parable is both sons are trying to be slaves. So the prodigal son comes back, I'll be a hired hand, I'll be a servant, I'll do whatever you say. And he says, you're a son, come in and celebrate. The other son, what does he say? Right? I've been your slave this whole time and you're not giving me my due. So at least one thing we can take from the parable is that whether, uh, you know, whether you're coming from, uh, whether you're looking like the prodigal son or the well-behaved older brother, this, there's this impulse in our flesh. We want to be slaves, not sons. And it won't last because slaves don't stay in the house. And so if you will not surrender your chains, they will drag you to hell because you must be free. You must be free. 
Now, freedom is given then. Here's the good news. Freedom is not hoarded from you or kept from you. It is given to you as a gift by the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. And so if you want to be free, God has given you a weapon so that you can be free in this world where, where it's perpetual slavery on top of more slavery. And that weapon is repentance. That's your weapon. Being rid of your sin has to be your first concern if you want to be free. And in case you forgot, you must be free. Luther said, if we want to remain free, it must begin with this. This one's not up there, sorry. That we are delivered from sin. For as long as sin remains, it is impossible to be free. You see, this is more important than whether or not, for, for instance, to, to grab some stuff from our stuff today that we worry and fret about. This is more important, like your sin and what the Lord intends to do to make you free, more important than whether or not you wear a mask, more important than whether or not you get a vaccine, more important than whether or not you go to college, more important than whether you fail out of college or whatever else you're doing, whether you're washed up or immature or feel like your future is secure or whether you feel like really dark times are ahead. Only sons remain in the house. You must be free. And so if you want to serve God today, before you wrap yourself in a particular cause, which is plenty of good there, but before you do that, or proclaim your political bitterness in the streets, repent of your sins. Own your sins. My sin, my own sin. Your specific and most grievous sins, because you must be free. How does that happen? Verse 36. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is a gift. It's received. Not earned. Free indeed. Actually free. Truly free. Not, not free, but then also, you know, some days a slave. No, no. Free. Truly free. Not, not free, but also a slave to all of the worldly ways of, of what? Anxiety, fear, rage, depression, suicide. Actually free. But be warned, freedom is found only with the Son. This was at the core of the Reformation, that freedom was not found in religious effort. Even the good religious effort. Even the really impressive religious effort. Luther spoke of men who fasted for days, who prayed with agony and tears, who went to Mass every day and who remained slaves because God was their master but never their father. For God's Son, Luther said, ranks far above all convents, cloisters, cowls, and tonsures. For anything that is not God's Son will not make me free. So what is this freedom? As I've said, it is first of all repentance in knowing that your biggest problem is your own sin and coming to that problem before you dare address any other. And so you must confess and believe that Jesus died for you Sinner. Luther said that's the hardest part of the gospel to believe. Two words. For me. For you. His blood was shed for you. He died to cleanse you of the filth of your best good works on your happiest days. And everything worse than that. And this comes to us not by some impossible equation that we have to solve, but by our earnest confession of the faith from the heart with no thought to whether or not it makes us look like fools. 
I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. This is part of why we do stuff like learn creeds or teach children the catechism so that we can keep on preaching stuff to each other that breaks chains. Our chains and our neighbor's chains. Even the ones that for Christians we are tempted to go back to. It is possible... Now, now let me... Sorry, let me put it to you as a question. If we learn the creeds, if we learn the catechisms, if we learn everything there is, you know, there is to learn, we memorize all that stuff, we get it all in our head, is it still possible for, for layers of dust to gather and settle on all that stuff? Of course it is. That's why we need each other, and that's why we need children. Children who are in the room this morning, little children, did you know that Jesus teaches you things about Himself from the Bible so that you can remind grown-ups about them. Because grown-ups forget stuff. Did you know that? They do. Again, Luther is so helpful here. He says, Old fools like me learn this with great difficulty. Little children learn it best. Others learn this wisdom too well, assuming that when they have heard it once, they know it all. I, however, feel I cannot understand it. This is the mark of free men. Freedom is our delight. And so, I put it to you today, are you free? Or are you enslaved? When you come to the Bible, do you come with dread or joy? When you hear from God in His Word, do you feel like someone being let out of prison? Or are the realities of freedom that I'm talking about this morning so distant from your heart that you just struggle to know what I even mean? It is no small thing, no small miracle to turn slaves into free people. I think you've heard me say this before. It it took a few weeks to get slaves out of Egypt. It took 40 years to get Egypt out of the slaves. And even then, the hunger for slavery still sees them. Jesus frees us with promises. He puts them before your eyes in the Scriptures. He says, look at them. He puts them into your ears with singing and with preaching. And he says, hear them. He puts them in your mouth at the Lord's table. And he surrounds you with the physical gathered assembly of God's people as if to say, sons remain in the house forever. What churches across America need most and what Grace Presbyterian Church in Alexandria needs most is not numbers. Numbers will go up and down and our hope is not planted there. What we need most is not money. Your elders and your deacons are going to meet in about two weeks to talk about the budget and some of the difficulties that might be ahead of us in the next year or two. Our hope is not in money. Slaves to money are always slaves to fear and even to paranoia. Our culture and our government is increasingly hostile to Christianity and freedom of conscience, but our hope is not in worldly powers. The Word of God endures forever. And it is to be desired by His children more than money or numbers or power or gold or even much fine gold. It is to be for them as honey drippings from the honeycomb. And even more than that. More to them than anything else than sex or autonomy or isolation or whatever else promises us freedom while giving us more chains to bear. 
So wherever you are today, wherever, however it is between you and Jesus Christ, simply know this, you must be free. You must be free. Do you know God? And do you want to? Do you want to find Him in His Word? Do you want to walk in His paths? The One who created you, do you want to know what for? Do you want to know His commands and His warnings? Do you want to know His forgiveness and His salvation? To repent of your wickedness. Your wickedness. In this way you will find Christ. Because He is the truth. And the truth will set you free. Now maybe you hear this sermon and you perhaps have struggled with a long time, for a long time, with some particular sin. Maybe you're up against addiction or not. I mean, not every long-term struggle with sin has to be classified as addiction. But maybe you've been struggling with a particular sin for a while. And I want you to hear me. Your sin and the practice of it will make you a slave. Perhaps it already has. What the devil then does is he takes that reality that all who practice sin are slaves to sin. Reality. Incontestable. He takes that reality and he just beats you down with it. He says, you will always be this way. There is no hope for you. You will never change. No sense in telling anyone about this sin struggle. No sense in getting help. They'll just despise you. This is particularly true with alcoholism and pornography. I found those two are the big ones that we hide. And this, this, the, the, the devil just comes in and, and there's just this beat down of you keep that to yourself. No one will understand. And the isolation is what drives you further and further into slavery. Jesus Christ sets sinners free. That's the gospel. He declares that those who are in Him are free indeed. And then you're called to war. Church, we just sang about it. Oh, church, arise and put your armor on and hear the call of Christ our captain. Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. Christian, you've been set free from guilt's and sin's price. Okay, so let me just try that again. You have been set free from sin's guilt price by the very blood of Jesus. This is the gospel, the good news. And because of it, you never need fear death. Furthermore, Christ has set you free from sin's dominion over you, and so you never need to fear life either. Unless you believe, you will die in your sins. But, but what incentive is this? The, the genuine offer of freedom that no slave driver, slave master in this world can touch. For if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Come just as you are with your woe. Fall down at the feet of the Lamb. He will not, He cannot say go, but surely will take out your stain. A fountain is open for sin, and thousands its virtues have proved. He'll take thee and plunge thee therein and wash thee from filth in His blood. In the name of Jesus Christ, our great Savior, come just as you are, for dear friends, you must be free. Amen. Our Father, we thank You for this great and glorious Gospel that has come to us. We celebrate that Jesus, our Savior, turns slaves into freemen, turns freemen into into kings 
who will rule with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And so as we wait for that day and live in the midst of spiritual warfare, threats on every side, threats within, threats without. Oh Lord, give us this firm confession that we are free. We are free indeed. Because you've promised us that wherever there is repentance before Jesus, there is forgiveness. There is hope. There is every reason to hope. And so, Lord, make war on our unbelief today. Put to death doubt and fear, anxiety, all the things that our enemy would threaten us with. And grant that your church militant on earth, moving toward that great and eternal day, would move forward with faith and confidence in your love and in your power. For this is our resting place. Thank you, Lord, for we must be free. In Jesus' name, amen.